When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Failing well includes a healthy portion of risk-taking in pursuit of things that you care about. Take more smart risks and be okay with the fact that they don't all pan out because they're risks, right? They're experiments. They're not supposed to all work. And in fact, if everything always works out as planned, you're not taking enough risks. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Amy Edmondson to the podcast. Amy is a professor of leadership and management at the Harvard Business School, and she is ranked number one this year on the prestigious Thinkers 50 list. Amy is such a legend in my field. I first came across her work when she came up with her idea of psychological safety, which is a concept that has been really powerful in the workplace to empower people to speak their truth and to challenge structures and systems and powers that uh, need to be challenged. And also just for people in the workplace to feel safe to work there and feel safe to express um, what they think is working and what they don't think is working. So her work has been so seminal in helping us understand the importance of psychological safety in the workplace. But today's episode really focused on her new book, which is the idea of failing well. And this is such an important idea. You know, the idea that We can take smart risks in our life and that risk-taking in pursuit of the things you care about should be encouraged. There's one idea that really stood out to me in this whole interview, and that's that choose to play a game where you fail more often than you succeed. If you just decide that that's the game you're going to play in life, then all these seeming failures that you accrue in your life are not something to shun or not something to be upset about. <laughs> it looks like the thumbs up just just automatically happened there. <laughs> That's pretty cute. If you decide to play that game in life, all the sort of failures that come your way are things that uh, are not things to fear. Um, she makes a lot of really clever and nuanced distinctions between 
failures and errors. Talks about three different archetypes, three different awareness zones. But the bottom line of this whole episode is that failure often brings us value. It brings us new perspectives. It brings us new knowledge. And we can have fun. You know, we can have fun from failure. I mean, failure isn't inherently fun, but we can try to make it fun. You know, it's part of life. At the very least, we can just accept that it's part of life. Um, We can help people reframe failure as a part of learning, and it does not have to be a source of shame. So I really think that this episode will give you all the practical tools that you'll need to fail well. Lots of implications here for society, education, the workplace, for parents. So let's get into it already. Without further ado, I bring you Amy Edmondson. Amy Edmondson. So <laughs> we did it. Have you. Yeah, we did. Thank you for coming on the Psychology Podcast. My pleasure. And uh, huge congratulations to you for topping the Thinkers 50 ranking. That is huge. Although I have a feeling it wasn't your first year that you topped that. <laughs> it was my second time, um, but I was stunned, flabbergasted even. So thank you. Uh, well, it's quite a quite an accomplishment, but it just reflects your incredible career that you've had so far. Um, and this new book is is really cool. I mean, I I'm a longtime fan of your work on psychological safety, right? And this going into this territory now, um, I'm wondering I'm wondering when you started to get into this territory. You know, when did your research start to? When did your attention start to go in that direction? Well, you know, it's really all of a piece. It's it's um, it's. It's one big integrated whole, and I can zoom in, you know, like a fractal on psychological safety. I can zoom in on failure. I can I can zoom in on 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 teaming and collaboration. But my overarching desire has always been how to help people and organizations learn in a world that keeps changing. And because early on in my graduate career, I sort of stumbled into the chance to study mistakes and failures in the healthcare setting. That's actually how I got to psychological safety rather than the other way around. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about your background then. Like, what was your uh, dissertation about? Well, my dissertation was called uh, Psychological Safety uh, and, and Learning in Work Teams. And Actually, it was group and organizational influences on on learning in in work teams. And psychological safety was sort of the centerpiece of it, and and it, it came about quite by accident. I was part of a large study of medication errors, and 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 the reason I was interested in that because I understood the basic idea that we have to learn from mistakes. Teams have to learn from mistakes. Organizations have to learn from mistakes. So I was happy enough to join this project. And what happened was I discovered that there were, and this wasn't what I set out to look, to look at, but I discovered that there were remarkable differences across work teams in their willingness to talk about error, in their ability to speak up when they didn't know what to do or when they thought someone was doing something wrong. And this I later called psychological safety. And I, you know, I was interested in it primarily because it was a precondition for learning. If, if teams can't, if you can't speak up about mistakes, you can't learn from them. If you can't speak up uh, and, and sort of ask for help from someone, you're not you're not learning. So, so it was it was basically learning from the beginning. Yeah, it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, it's all connected, and it was and it was you know the the role of 
of, of failures and mistakes was always just such a big part of it as well. Yeah. And that's the new topic. It's the topic of this book and your most recent book. And we'll, we'll definitely get there. Since I've never had you on my podcast before, I'd love to spend a couple minutes just talking about psychological safety. Absolutely. I'd, I'd feel remiss if I didn't. Totally. Um, so uh, how do you define psychological safety? Is it is it is the primary component there um, being feeling safe to speak up in a, in a corporation or a company kind of situation where you might feel a lot of pressure um, to stay silent or be quiet? Yes, it's it's um it's a belief that your context is safe for interpersonal risks primarily the interpersonal risks of speaking up with an idea a question a concern a mistake a dissenting view all of those sort of utterances that are interpersonally challenging you know it's never easy to say something either at work um or in other contexts in our lives that might um, lead someone else to not think well of you. We have we have a natural instinct to self protect, and we don't want to look ignorant, incompetent, intrusive, or negative. So we will generally err on the side of let's wait and see. Right? If I think you're you're doing something uh, wrong there, rather than quickly point that out, as, as would be sort of natural to do in in some sense. I don't want you to think less well of me, so I, I I hold back. So psychological safety describes the rather unusual environment where you really do believe your voice is welcome. Not that it's easy or effortless to speak up with potentially controversial ideas or, or when you've made a mistake, but that you believe it's welcome, it's expected, it's what we do around here. So that's psychological safety. And primarily, I've studied it in the work context, in the context of, of people who are interdependent in getting in getting work done. Yeah, yeah. And as, as much as I, I think that it's important to keep your politics out of the workplace, we're becoming a really, really increasingly fractionated society. Uh, it really concerns me, you know, especially America. And I don't know how familiar you are with Jonathan Haidt's work on viewpoint diversity. I was wondering how you've linked uh, maybe this idea of viewpoint diversity to psychological safety. It's a, it's um, it's very related. And I, in fact, I've done I've done some work, not enough, but some work on, and I teach, I, I teach this material often on how to ensure high quality decisions are made in, in complex, uncertain environments, which requires viewpoint diversity uh, to have come into the conversation. And in part, when psychological safety isn't present, um, and a variety of other reasons, people will often you know, to, they want to be likable. They want to be friendly, what have you. Um, they will, they will hold back their, their differing views. So viewpoint diversity is an absolutely essential element of high quality decisions under uncertainty. And, and yet a lack of psychological safety and also a desire to, you know, be likable or look good in, in front of especially high status others will lead people to withhold their their opinions. So yes, right, there's 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 there are real connections here uh, between these different ideas. Yeah, because I think like on college campuses right now, I think a lot of Republicans feel don't feel psychological safety. You know, it's just it depends on what the context is we're talking about. Yeah, or let's I mean let's it's it's um I'm not sure anybody feels um, terribly psychologically safe 
um, you know, for, from any any sort of political perspective in terms of the 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 stakes have gotten higher, right? The stakes for if you say something wrong, you're now subject to, you know, uh, cancel culture or 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 worse. And and so I I, I think there are we have created a very fraught interpersonal environment. It, it, this is tricky, right? Because I, I guess I I started my research career, and most of it is still this way, looking at the work environment and really looking at the, the things we, we have to talk about so that we can get the work done, so that we can make, if we're, uh, you know, a, an executive team, so that we can make good strategic decisions. If we're a new product development team, so that we can include the features that customers most want. And, and, uh, if we're taking care of patients, again, speaking up quickly to make sure we don't give the wrong drug, the wrong dose, et cetera. So I've been, I have been primarily interested in the work and what it takes, which I think is a lot to do work well, especially interdependent work. And it, you know, it seems odd in a way that people would hold back work relevant observations, concerns, but they do, you know, even people trained as engineers, I have plenty of evidence of this, will will hold back. Um, I think it's a different phenomenon, equal, you know, also important, and I'd love to sort of think aloud with you on it, but it, that of of people feeling that it's no longer safe to express their political views. Um, and because, I mean, maybe on a college campus, that sort of is the work, or if you're in a course, a political science course, that is the work. So yes, absolutely. And, you know, a thoughtful um, facilitation of a good conversation may help. There's so many ways we can go with this because what, what's, what's coming into my mind is this is not just, or maybe not even primarily a psychological safety problem. It's primarily a quality of discourse problem. Most, most people have not learned the skills to have productive conversations, conversations, um, um, that Chris Argerus, um might think about as truly learning oriented, right? Where they, where we are balancing advocacy and inquiry. That means statements and questions. Where we are, are using high quality advocacy um, and high quality inquiry, which means we're not stuck at the top of a, of a ladder of inference, debating or even offering our conclusions. You know, this guy's terrible, or you know whatever right we're 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 offering evidence and data and we're walking through our reasoning to try to help people like if i see something uh, you know if i see something differently than you um my natural spontaneous res- response is to say um i'm right and you're wrong but a more thoughtful learning oriented response is to say i wonder why i think x and you think y i'd like to walk through my thinking with you and tell you some of the, some of the evidence, some of the facts, some of the data that I, I tend to look at. And I know it's selected from a vast amount of data. Um, I'm sure you're looking at some different ones and maybe some of the same. Like, let's walk through our thinking together and see if as a result, we can both learn more. We don't do that very often. People haven't learned the skills to do that. And so they get stuck at the top of, 
the ladder of inference with their conclusions saying, it's not safe for me to express my conclusions. Yeah. And in that spirit, uh, let, let's continue that conversation because I was trying to think of specific examples um, to make this concrete. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems to me like a big problem is when the the, the, the corp the company has sacred certain sacred cows that can't be challenged. Yes. To me it, that's what I'm thinking of. Right. So I'm thinking of examples um like DEI. DEI programs are, are sacred cows in some companies now. It's 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 taboo for someone in the company to say, actually I don't think the way we're going about it is is effective. You know, and uh right. and so how do you hold a space for dissenting opinions when a certain sacred cow of the company is a certain way. I guess that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I mean, so if I think that's a great, a, a great example. So if, you know, if I don't, if I worry, I mean, if, if I am under the belief that the way we're going about our DEI program isn't working, if it's a, a valid belief, it comes from somewhere. So I think I have a responsibility uh, maybe first alone and then together to think through why do I think that? Like what, what are my concerns? And then I need to express them in the following way, right? I have some concerns about how we're going about this policy. Um, I'd love to share them with you. Um, and, and, and hear your reactions because I'd, I'd love to learn more from, um, how you see it. Let's say if you see it, if you see it differently. So it's not coming and saying, Oh, I think this is you know, bunk and it's not safe to say so. So I'm just going to shut up and, and ride it out. That's neither um, a terribly learning oriented nor a terribly responsible stance. Now, what I'm asking us and people to do is really hard because it means we have to first have the discipline to pause and examine our own thinking. Like, how did I get here? Right. How did I get to the the conclusion or maybe the tentative conclusion that this program is um is failing us or is is not a not um serving a productive end and i've got to have something that's leading me to think that right i mean and it could be i mean it could, let's let's think let's think of possibilities right it could be that you know many of the people i know who are in my dominant group um are are feeling, maybe rightly or wrongly, that they now are not um, welcome to apply for certain jobs uh, because they're being re- reserved for for other people who are not in their group. Um, let's talk about that. Right? Let's 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 um, let's let's test it and explore what the, if if that's true. What are the implications of that? If that's not true, how do we help them understand that it's not true so that they put their hat in the ring? Um, you know, I'm trying to get concrete here, uh, but but I think we've gotten so good at jumping up to our conclusions and then sticking with them and believing they're either welcome or unwelcome, and then saying we're stuck. We're not stuck. We're we're you know we're we're fallible human beings who need to uh, be good learners. And that attitude that you just described is seen in every direction, which doesn't cause great progress of no. on, I, on either side. No, yeah. it cre- creates stagnation and stuckness. It's a really good point. So it seems like a lot of it has to do with the manner in which you uh, yes. vo- voice your dissent. You know, because yes. there is really high quality research showing that diversity training programs backfire. And that's really problematic. Yeah. It's, it's it high, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's high quality. If you're thinking of Frank Dobbin and others, it's very high quality, also very, so very um, macro, right? They're, 
they're getting data, which is what you do. If you're doing research, you want to make a, um, a thoughtful conclusion um, about a large number of entities. You need a lot, a lot of data from many different organizations. So that kind of research gives us um, very robust conclusions about, um, say, that statement that these programs aren't working, right? But they don't tell us very much about what's really going on with those programs and, and how, what's, the, what's the quality of the programming and how well-led are they and how have they been framed and how have they been introduced? Have they been a checkbox activity or have they been, you know, the, the, the result of really high-quality dialogue um, that, is, that is genuinely trying to do the hard work of making a more fair world? And I suspect, and you'd need some qualitative research to get at those details, and I suspect more often than not, um, the answer is that the programs are not high quality enough, not because those were not well-intentioned uh, good people, but because this is very hard to do well. Um, so my takeaway from that, I think, really important research is we've got work to do in making the quality of our interventions actually serve our aims. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's an excellent point. And, and then there's also philosophical disagreements about whether or not ideological colorblindness is a better approach right. than focusing everyone's attention on race differences in a workplace. And that's a separate issue. That's more philosophical. It is. Than, yeah. And it, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes back to philosophy or values. Um, and and I think reasonable people can disagree on what you prioritize and when. And, and that, I think, is the kind of you know, debates we should be having. And I would agree with your premise, or I think your implicit premise, which is we're not having those. Um, we're not having these honest discussions. Right, right. We're just sort of leaping over sometimes to a kind of um, all or either and all or nothing. And, 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 and it's not, um, it's not working. It's not what we're, whatever we're doing is not working. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, your work, uh, we can put a pause there and we can go into your new work. Um, but I, I did want to highlight that I'm so that glad you bit. raised it, actually, because oh, I, 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 I do think um, something needs to be written on this because people um, have been kind of in the hallways and on the, you know, in, in audiences, in the, in the pit afterwards, people will come up and say, yeah, but it's not safe for me uh, anymore. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I empathize um, and I never have quite enough time to say, let's really get into this. Like, let's see what we might, you know, what might be done. Um, can't do that in the 32nd sort of, you know, meet and greet. Yeah. I mean, I think that these, uh, these contexts of power can, can change on a dime. You know, I, I don't yes. think that they're as uh, static as possible where we say like, well, if you're this group, then you're victimized forever. If you're this group, you're never victimized. Right. I mean, I think that depending is very contextual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're all, you know, in some ways, we're all victims at some yes. points, you know, and and um, and and victims victors, of life, victors at others. Um, but but what's never particularly useful for us, and this does take us into the failure topic, it's never a particularly healthy stance, the victim stance, even under those conditions when it is entirely true, meaning. Um, Man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl, you know, at Auschwitz, right? There, there's no better 
you know, moment of, of truly being a victim of forces way outside your control. Um, and his deep and brilliant recognition was there is a space between stimulus and response, right? And in that space lies our freedom and our power, right? And, and that, that, that they cannot take away from me my ability to choose my response, right? And to choose and to look around at the incredible courage and suffering and strength um, and magnificence of some of the people he was with and envision a better future for all of us. That was all he could do, um, but he did that, right? And that's, um, I mean, that's an extreme case, but it's an extreme case that illustrates that the opposite, I guess, you know, but the, when, when we instead decide or don't decide, but get stuck in the victim mindset, um, we really lose our, our power and our opportunity to create something better. It's really, really speaking my language here. (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash psychpodcast today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash psychpodcast. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. In this new book, you talk about failing well. Well, did, did Victor Frankl fail well in a way? 
Well, he succeeded brilliantly. Um, yeah, he sure did. I mean, he was, he was, let's say, I don't think I would argue that he failed. Uh, he was in a deeply and profoundly large failure, a, 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 a massive, a system, complex, a system of failure. systemic failure, um, you know, that, that had many, many um, opportunities to have redirected it, you know, years and years earlier, but not, not opportunities that Viktor Frankl himself was in charge of. But he was um, an unwitting participant in this massive societal failure and made better psychological choices than most. Uh, and so in that sense, he was navigating failure well. I love that. He was navigating a system of failure well. Um, you know, I was trying to think of a, yeah, a meta kind of view of, of what does failure mean? Yeah. Know? What is even, what, what if you just don't interpret anything as failure? Like what if you just refuse right. to even have that vocabulary? And so everything that. that there's a, feels like a setback is actually sure growth, fodder for growth. You know, that it's true. It's, you know, nature, um, includes failure, right? We all, you know, we, death is failure when we, I mean, we have, it's part, in other words, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that the word may be problematic, right? Because the word, the word means an undesired outcome. Um, we wanted something else. We got this. So it's, you know, the project was supposed to succeed, but it failed. And, and, um, and yet that's our narrow, you know, human perspective. I wanted, you know, I wanted that project to succeed, but, but, you know, the universe didn't want it to succeed. So therefore, um, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it depends on perspective, right? It's the, uh, from the perspective of universe, maybe that's not uh, a failure, but that's, that's well beyond my uh, pay grade. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fair enough. Well, we can, let's stick with the, your, <laughs> the way you frame it in your book. Um, there, you say there are many reasons why we hate failure. Um, one aversion, um, you know, we have this emotional visceral response, probably evolution designed us that way. Right. Um, confusion, um, um, when we don't have a healthy relationship with our failure, it can confuse us and fear, which is the, obviously the social stigma. Have you found in your research that one of those three seems to be most prominent among humans? Well, you know, I think I have a biased perspective because I've been most interested in the interpersonal realm. So in a way, those are those three, those three sort of factors that lead us to have an unhealthy relationship, you know, the aversion, confusion, and, and fear. Aversion is kind of a spontaneous emotional response. And, and confusion is cognitive, you know, we are, we don't always do a good job between sorting, you know, distinguishing between like lovely discoveries in new territory and, you know, you know, stupid mistakes that we make. So, but the, but the third one is the one that I'm, I think because of my lens, because of my longstanding interest, because I look at organizations and teams, um, which is the, the, the interpersonal domain is, is the one I'm most interested in. And often the one that seems um, most challenging to fix. And, and that is the, you know, that, that very real worry about what do other people think of me? And I want to look good, not bad. I want to look like a success, not a failure. And, and so um, I, you know, I do, I do everything I can uh, to kind of avoid uh, the looking bad. Uh, my friend, uh, Michael Gervais, just wrote a book. He coined this term called FOPO, 
fear of people's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. It just came out, so it's fresh in my mind, and I'm going to be having him on my podcast soon. Um, it's a really cool book. Um, it, yeah, I can see it relating to this very much. I guess it, you know, so much of it does come down to the framing, though. You know, like that yes. fail, that you're a failure. You know, so right. many people, I think deep down maybe based on childhood trauma or whatever whatever past experiences one has had we think we are like our existence is a failure and so we do all these you see this a lot in hyper over competitive hyper achievement cultures actually just go to the gym and you'll see <laughs> oh, yeah absolutely yeah i mean yeah. We, we work overcompensation we're overcompensation yeah we're working so very hard you know to be a success in the minds of others um and maybe we should start with, you know, just being as first being, being okay with who we are, you know, being, being okay. But, but I think we shouldn't just be complacent. Like we should be okay with who we are because, you know, we, um, do our best to make a positive difference in the lives of either the people in our family or, or more, more broadly, um, we're fighting the good fight and, and we're doing our best and we're not always succeeding, of course, but, um, we can we can feel good about it. So, well, how can how can people overcome this? Uh, you know, how can they fail well? <laughs> <laughs> well, failing well. Um, here's how I think about it. It's it's let's, let's let me start with the the good kind of failure the 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 kind that scientists do for a living, and and those are I call them intelligent failures. And I would say failing well means having more intelligent failures in, in your life. And intelligent failures are still undesired results of thoughtful experiments in or thoughtful forays into, into new territory. So to be intelligent, it has to be in pursuit of a goal in territory where you can't just, you can't avoid it by doing your homework. You do your homework to have a, a thoughtful hypothesis or a good reason to believe that what you're about to do might work. And then you, um, uh, you want to keep it as small as possible. And, and so that, that's, that describes anything from trying to make a new friend, you know, going on a blind date, uh, to, um, um, a, a project at work, uh, to, uh, a scientific experiment, you know, it, it covers a lot of territory. We, and maybe a better way to put this psychologically is take more risks, right? Take, but take more smart risks. You know, don't run out into traffic in search of a lost ball, right? Take more smart risks and be okay with the fact that they don't all pan out because they're risks, right? They're experiments. They're not supposed to all work. And in fact, if everything always works out as planned, you're not taking enough risks, right? You're not, you're not stretching. You're not growing. So. Failing well includes a healthy portion of risk-taking in pursuit of things that you care about. It also includes best practices to avoid preventable, what I'll call basic failures, as well as uh, to try to get out ahead of and, and prevent and mitigate complex failures. Wow. So you have three archetypes you just described of failures. Right. Basic complex and intelligent right where did you come how did you come up with that <laughs> where did you come up with this stuff you know i came up with it years ago um actually uh, well 
about a decade ago, more, a little more than a decade ago, I was asked to do a talk. I was at, Teresa Amabile asked me to come do a talk in her um, creativity conference. I love her. And I do too. She's such a gem. And, and so I thought, I know I'm going to talk about failure, right? Because I was really interested. I've always been interested in innovation. I was also interested in, you know, medication errors and organizational learning. So I thought, I'll give a talk about failure. And then I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, like I have to figure out what I want to say. So I went through all the case studies, all the research that I'd done and said, you know, can I categorize this in some way? And, and I did. And, and then I wrote this Harvard Business Review article about it, but it really was, um, you know, it was a conceptual categorization that was, I, I would say from qualitative research, like one making that, that different category. I'm also married to a scientist. So that helps, right? I think about, I, I, you know, I asked him, um, what, what percent of failures in your lab? He's a a stem cell scientist, you know, end in failure. And he, he thought about it, um, you know, quite seriously. And he said, I think about 70%, right? 70% of the experiments that the young scientists in his lab were running would not pan out, would end in failure. And, you know, I started to think about this. Well, how do you get out of bed in the morning? And the answer is, of course, the 30% are pretty exciting. And and many of them lead to uh, great publications or or occasionally to actual therapies to to cure diseases. So it's, um, you get out of bed in the morning, despite those bad odds, because A, the upside is really worth it. um, And B, you train yourself to understand that that's the game you've chosen to play, right? Because you're in new territory, literally, you have chosen to play a game where more often than not, you'll fail, right? You'll fail more often than you'll succeed. And and so you think differently. And w- one of the things I think all of us need to, or could uh, sort of get from the, the scientists in our lives is to think more like them, you know, and, and less like, 19th century industrialists who believe you can just sort of say, here's the target and then hit it, or, you know, here's our 10 year plan and then we'll meet it. It's like, no, we don't live in that world anymore. That's a really good point. Yeah. I, I fear sometimes I need to think less like a scientist just to communicate with other humans. In the well, everyday, there's that. But what I mean by life, think like a scientist I do know what you mean. I do know is, what you, mean. you know, yeah. um, think about possibilities. Think about where yeah. you might be wrong. Think of your actions more as hypotheses than as guaranteed plans, you know, that there will always work. I knew what you meant, Amy. <laughs> I was making a joke. Was and it was a, a good one. <laughs> you know, the supermarket, you know, I'm like, statistically, um, this uh, product is right. not going to do well for my cholesterol. Uh, people are like, we don't care about that. But anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, what is the difference between mistakes, errors, and failures? Well, I I treat mistakes and errors as synonymous. Um, one is more academic sounding than than the other, but mistakes are deviations from known practices, procedures, or policies. Right? There is established knowledge in place to get the result you want to get, and you deviate from it by mis- by by mistake. You know, without without intention, and that's a mistake. Um, failures can be caused by mistakes, um, but they can also be simply a a hypothesis that was wrong, that didn't pan out. So failure is a larger term. It covers more territory. It's any any undesired outcome. 
Um, whereas a mistake is a particular kind of undesired outcome. And of course, some mistakes, you make a mistake, but it's like minuscule and it doesn't, it doesn't actually affect anything. So it's, it's technically a mistake, but there was no real consequence of it. So, so no failure. Who invented the concept of failure? Like, isn't that an interesting question? Yeah. Like, if you go back in human history, was it school systems with tests? Like, you failed the test. Like, I wonder if that started right, yeah. at all. You can't have failure without some, you know, without um, some definition Winning. of success, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So probably, it probably came out in pretty early language, even before school systems. But as you, you know, let's say you're, um, you know, you're trying to... Um, find a mate and and the one that you have your eye on um goes off with someone else right you'd probably feel that as a failure um and you'd pivot and you'd try something else but you probably i I bet we had that that conception of you know a disappointing outcome pretty early yeah probably but I'm wondering when language arose. When 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 did the word? What's the root of failure? Yeah. What's the what's the, what's the Latin et- etymology of it? It's a great question. Let me just Google that real quick. Do maybe it has something to do with faith or working. Like there's so the Latin translation translation of the word failure is defectus, which comes from the verb defecare, um, defective, deficiency. Aha, deficiency. Deficiency. We've come up yeah. short again. Yes. You know, and even scientists who have a good hypothesis and test it in the lab and they're wrong, they do feel they came up short. You know, they, they don't love it. Yeah, yeah. So that's the French, uh, yeah. came from a French notion of lacking. Huh? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh dear, right? <laughs> <Didn't>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But good okay. to know. I should have done that myself, of course. No. Well, I'm a nerd, you know. Um, so, and, well, speaking of me being a nerd, uh, your book really tickled my, uh, desire, uh, my fancy for, uh, systematizing. You also have three awareness zones. I love it because you just have all these, like, here are three archetypes. Here are three. I, yeah, I, I love Just it. assert I, them, right? I know. I love that stuff. So, okay. Your three awareness zones, self, situation, and systems. You know, we kind of talked a little bit about systems, but yeah. Could you, could you kind of tell me, walk me through the difference between these three? Yeah, you know, this is actually um, something that often had, had come up often in my classes and in my own analyses of cases of sort of complex cases. And I noticed it as a pattern um, a couple of years ago, you know, I was, I was teaching a case and a student said, and it's something that was in the back of my mind, but basically sort of used that as a framework in her comment to describe uh, something in a, her analysis that had gone wrong in this situation. This recognition that went, that leaders who are more self-aware, more situationally aware, and more systemic thinkers um, could be more effective in, you know, in navigating uncertainty and complexity. Um, so it really is, I, I don't want to say this is some kind of, I think the failure archetypes are, I think the three types of failure is a pretty robust classification uh, system. I'm personally um, at the moment enamored with this idea that there's something fundamental about self situation and system awareness in, especially in navigating uncertainty. I'm sure I'm missing some other element that we that we could talk about, um, but I I could draw a straight line from um, each of these competencies um, to various failure stories, both the good kind and the bad kind, um, and and so I thought it might be a helpful way to you know 
help help people become more comfortable with uncertainty and fallibility. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm still working on that myself. Oh yeah, oh, I, I can I can resonate. I can resonate, and I and I really do link that. I really do see clearly now this connection with psychological safety that I didn't see as clearly before. So this has been really elucidating this conversation. <laughs> okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Well, relating to our earlier talk about DEI, you, you distinguish between privileged failure and the kind of failure uh, pressure that minority groups face. Can you kind of walk me through that distinction? Sure. I I did some thinking about the unequal playing field, right? The the un, unlevel playing field for uh, for failing. Um, let's say in an entrepreneurship environment or in a in a company setting, a project that you're that you're leading, and and I began to realize, and I'm not the first person to realize this, that if you are a member of the dominant group in that organization, um, you're less likely personally to worry and collectively to be seen as. Um, a representative of a group so that your failure is less likely to be seen as um, 
reflecting badly on the group that you um, are part of. And, and so if you are um, a member of an underrepresented um, minority and you're put in charge of some project and you fail, you will be anxious um, and probably rightly so that people will then say, okay, we'll never do one of those. You know, we're never going to put some one of that kind of person again uh, in, in a role like that because look, she failed. And so, um, you know, the aspiration would be a level playing field where we just don't think that way anymore. That anyone who has a success or a failure is, um, you know, is simply a case study from which we can learn about better and worse things to do in a particular situation, not a representative of some identity group doing things that we either can or can't learn from in that situation. Oh, wow. I need to process that. Sorry. Sorry. I know I'm, I'm being Whoa. a little abstract, but it's, you know, it's, it's just, um, if you imagine um, an organization where we're putting someone in charge of, let's say, a major country division who is, um, we've never had uh, maybe a African-American woman leading such a thing before and something goes badly wrong, what's the first thing people are going to think? Well, they, you know, like they got it because of their skin color. Yeah, they got it because of that. And look, we we shouldn't try that again. That was a mistake. You know, it's 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 going to be all about their category. It's not going to be about what do we learn from that. And you know, we no one, or maybe we do it the other way. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a white male, and um, you know project goes wrong nobody would ever think let's stop <laughs> because he was picked because he was a white male and let's never let's never do that again yeah people don't think that way yeah about, yeah that yeah. just wouldn't that just wouldn't make any sense um i mean statistically speaking right yeah 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 i, I yeah i'm just thinking of because I, I feel like there's a lot of like insidious like microaggressions against white males these days though <laughs> no no i mean i i i, I think I, it's I see true. it i see it sometimes you know it's it's yeah. sort of the um here you know wouldn't it be interesting if we could be um david thomas he used to use the um the term and i guess others have used it as well unearned privilege and um an unearned privilege of course refers to to white men and i would love to be at the at a at a place where that isn't, um, it's not an insult, right? Like we, we should, we should be able to enjoy the advantages we have and, and everyone, not everyone, but many people have different kinds of advantages. Some people are, you know, more attractive and some people are taller and, and in a sense, you know, height is one of those fantastic things where, you know, the same with physical attractiveness, right? Yeah. They're wildly overrepresented in, in, um, you know, not jobs like actors and actresses where that makes sense, but in jobs like CEOs where it makes no sense. Um, well, the halo effect is a real thing. Right. The halo effect is a real thing. And the, and so that's, that's kind of this phenomenon of you get certain privileges or advantages that you didn't strictly speaking earn, you know, by just working harder at your calculus, uh, than, than anybody else. And, but why does that have to be an insult? Like you're, yeah, you're lucky. We all got some luck. Um, and we could celebrate it and be okay with it and not think you're dissing me when, when you have such a phrase. Yeah. So the unearned privilege there is, is, is just whatever privileges 
are, are confined to having white skin. Is that the idea? Because yeah. I think it can be a, an insult to treat the totality of a human based on the color of their skin. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just trying to yeah. think this through. It or not an insult, way. but a, a gross um, minimization of, of who they are. Exactly. I don't yeah. like saying that in any direction. I, I yeah. certainly don't. I hate racism, but I also hate when we reduce anyone to their skin yeah. color. So, But you could see a situation where a white man, for instance, has earned They've worked extremely yeah. hard. And I know many be, of them. And there can be an element where they, you know, they recognize whatever privileges they've had that have contributed. But when you reduce, when you dismiss their achievement 100% right. based no. on the color of their skin, because I do see that sometimes, I do yeah. think that's an insult. It is. You know it what, is. You know and it I mean? would be fun to, again, to to engage, engage those moments and engage those situations with a, a, a truly learning oriented um, perspective and the skills to kind of dig into it. But wow. I mean, imagine a world where we had more mutual understanding and more just sort of appreciation for what each, each one of us brings to a situation, our, 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 our strengths and our weaknesses and, and kind of could, could embrace each other for who we are, some of the things we've worked really hard on, others we kind of skated along. It's okay, right? The, the whole totality of me, of who I am, could be seen by you uh, and vice versa. And that's unusual. It's very unusual. Is, is, that, is that what you think uh, would help create a healthy, failing well culture? Yes, yes. In fact, I would describe a you know a healthy failure culture um, as as one in which um, we ca- are okay with the fact that we're each fallible human beings, and we're willing then to take risks, both in the business sense and in the interpersonal sense, in pursuit of of learning and progress and and and. Um, toward the goal of creating a, you know, a, a healthy and sustainable world for all of us. I'm very much on board with that. <laughs> you know, your, your bottom line here seems to be that failing isn't fun. It doesn't always feel comfortable. Never fun. But... It's not like it feels great, but that's okay. Not everything needs to feel great. It's part of life. I think we live in this culture where everything, you know, they're all on my Instagram feed. I have one advertisement after another trying to make me feel great. It's just like we're obsessed with feeling great, you know, but there are so many things we can learn from uncomfortable and even yes. awkward moments. I mean, half yes. of my day are awkward interactions with humans, but Absolutely. that's not bad, right? No, it's not bad. It's part of life. Like failure is not fun, but it's part of life. And it often even brings value to us, you know, new knowledge new perspectives, right, that make us enriched as, 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 as people. And, and, you know, and psychological safety describes an environment where you are okay feeling uncomfortable because um, you're not, you're not going to die just feeling uncomfortable or, you know, having an awkward conversation or asking for help. But sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. So I do like this idea of intelligent failures. Yeah, and how they can bring discovery. You you talk about four essential tools for failing well. Persistence mm-hmm. uh, is one. Persistence, and you distinguish that from stubbornness. So, what's the difference between the two? Um, well, the, the difference is um, one of perspective. Right? So, I, what I I I I'm often intrigued by these um, these words that are kind of strengths and positives that also have um, you know a, a flip side where it's really could 
potentially be describing the same behavior, but seen through a critical rather than a praiseworthy lens. And so, you know, your persistence, which is admirable, might be seen by me as stubbornness. Um, my, by the way, my persistence is never stubbornness, um, you know, for me. And so, uh, I, and the only reason I bring, bring that up is that um, I want to be clear that while persistence is a value and it's necessary, right? None of us ever accomplished anything in our lives without a little bit of persistence and, and hard work and grit and, you know, picking ourselves back up. Let's just go back to the, the proverbial bicycle, right? We, no child ever learned how to ride a bicycle. The minute they got on, just off they went, right? There, there was persistence uh, involved because it was hard. And, and yet I just wanted to make the point there in, in the book when talking about these things that there's always judgment, right? There's always discernment um, because there are times in life where we have to sort of step back and say, hmm, I wonder if I'm persisting too long in a failing course of action and the world is trying to tell me something and it's time to sort of shift and try something else. And how do you know, right? How do you make the distinction between healthy, admirable persistence and unhealthy uh, problematic stubbornness. And there's no easy answer. Um, but one suggestion would be get some other voices in, you know, make sure to get feedback from others. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing this boulder up the hill. What do you think? Am I throwing good money after bad here? Right. Get, get some other perspectives and, and, and dig, dig in and dig down to try to understand what the, our argument is to keep going and what the argument is to it's time to stop. Um, and a kind of rule of thumb in that one is, um, you know, persist if you have good reason to believe that there's just a, there's a hurdle or two here that once we overcome it, then we will, um, the, the rest is sort of clear sailing. There's a, there's genuine evidence that there's, a market for this, right? If we can only find someone to manufacture it, there will be a market. I have data to show that there are customers out there ready and willing to buy this if only we can make it. But if conversely, you know, you got some idea and you can't even get anyone to say, yeah, love that idea. I, w I would buy it if it existed. And, you know, no one but no one thinks it's a good idea except you and maybe your mother. Then, um, you know, the persistence is probably... Uh, not well. So to summarize, no one to grit and no one to quit. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. Um, it. You have four here. Your second is reflection. I think that's uh, self-explanatory. Self-explanatory, but make it a habit, right? That's not make something we naturally do. Yeah, no, it's not something that is predominant, even though it's self-explanatory. Um, accountability. Um, so, uh, does, you know, can you have accountability partners for failing well? Sure. So, so accountability is a word, at least in the sort of corporate space, that has come to mean punishment, and I think that's problematic. Right? I see. I see. You know, oh, you know, there's there's got to be accountability, right? And and and, but the the real root of it is about taking, you know, being able to provide the account, you know, what happened, like to really truly understand what happened um, and own and acknowledge your contribution to the failure or to the, to the disappointment. Wow. That, right? No one's willing to do that these days. Right. What, yeah. What are the things that you did 
that contributed? What are the things maybe by omission you failed to do that could have helped, right? But that is, again, that's the kind of thing we don't do because we think we'll look bad. And in truth, you look good. You know, when you have the courage and the confidence to say, huh, here's the way I came up short. Here are the things that I did or didn't do that contributed to this outcome. You actually look like someone who's pretty wise and pretty capable to have figured that out. And you're now equipped to go forward and do better. I know you weren't talking to me, but thank you. Uh, Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. Um, But you have such a nice way of framing things <laughs> it's so polite and well, uh and 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 mature and respectful you know <laughs> it's well framing is a framing is a skill i think yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, it's, oh it's, yeah it's a it's a cognitive skill and it's a and it's a um it's a skill that can really help um us cope with the challenges that lie ahead Oh yeah, but I'm using. Behind. I'm saying you have that skill. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I, I guess I've worked. I've worked at it, but you know, I don't always have it in the exact moments when I need it. I mean, there's just there are so many cultures, work cultures that are so antithetical to that spirit. I mean, did you see the Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine like saying to them, "You should." reframe you know because there are cultures that are so like testosterone enhanced you know where it's like winning competition with this i mean for them they would they would listen to this and and roll their eyes right but those kinds of cultures often um look really good in the in the short term or for some period of time and then they crash and burn they 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 collapse under their own weight because nature doesn't really work that way no, it's a root that, I mean, I agree. That's a good point. Uh, sometimes you have to find out the hard way. <laughs> yeah, time, time frame is everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the last one is sincere apologies. You know, that's a, a, a good tool for fun. That takes a humbleness, right? That takes. Yes, a, it does. You know, a lot of this is taking the ego out of the equation. You know, that totally. seems to be a thread running through all of these. Yeah, because yeah. and the ego is really a source of unhappiness that we mistake as a source of happiness. I mean, you know, we puff ourselves up thinking that will make us feel better. It just makes us lonely, really. Um, but so a, a sincere apology, it was really fun actually for this book to go to the, there's actual research on apologies. Um, you know, it's very thoughtful. And and um, they use the term that the purpose of an apology is to, re- is to repair the rupture in the relationship. You know, if I do something wrong, um, I have in either a small or a large way created a little rupture in in the relationship. And um, if I can be courageous enough and, you know, ego free enough to apologize, I'm helping repair that rupture. And a, and a high quality apology they they show is one in which you, you know, you do take some responsibility for your part in, in what happened. You acknowledge the harm. Um, you offer, if possible, to make amends, or to, which could even just be a promise to do to do better next time or not do that again. And that takes courage. It takes honesty. Um, and it's very hard to do it's, unless you genuinely do put the relationship ahead of ego. You know, unless the unless the if the relationship doesn't mean anything to you, you'll resist the apology indefinitely. Yeah, it's I mean, it's such a good point, and it, 
to, you have to remind yourself of that when you're in the grips of the ego. It's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'd be remiss, you know, we're, we're ending this, this interview and I want to be respectful of your time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this fascinating link you talk about in your book between social media and perfectionism. Yeah, that's, that's, wow. um, I mean, I think that's, it's intuitive. I think most people or many people are, are, Increasingly thinking about this, mm, um, yeah. this Including problem, this challenge and the mental health implications of it. But social media, you know, by definition is, is you, you choose what you're posting and you, you try to post things that make you look good, not bad. So maybe you post, uh, just the best pictures. We can easily, you know, toss in the trash the pictures that aren't so good. You highlight your, uh, success is not your failures. So, um, that's natural. That's ma- makes sense. I mean, who would want to go and stand on a mountaintop and, and yell out about their failures? But it leaves us with, um, an artificially curated data set. Um, it is not representative of people's full and complicated lives, but is only the, you know, the, the happy front. And then ours feel, our lives feel, um, sad and and inadequate by comparison. So the whole phenomenon of social comparison, which we've been doing since the dawn of time, um, is now distorted by social media. You know, we used to sort of look to our right, look to our left. And and some of that comparison was healthy because it would say, oh, I guess I better sit up straight, you know, and 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 some of it made us feel bad because someone is, looks like they're happier than you are, what have you. But now it's a distorted, biased data set against which many people, especially teenagers um, and more vulnerable um, young people, um, are are sort of stuck with this biased data set, and and it can cause great great harm. Yeah, it really can. Uh, I was I was thinking though, there are instances where I think people on social media are rewarded socially by signaling their victimhood or signaling their vulnerability. That's interesting. That's true, right? And everybody kind of swarms in to 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 say, oh, a yeah, way of getting yeah, attention, yeah, a way yeah, of getting yeah. attention. Uh, you know, now everyone uh, and and their mother has uh, has discovered trauma. You know, and uh, in their life, and um, and then everything on social media is about like you know, look at me, I've had trauma. You know, it's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, I haven't done much thinking about that, but that's actually a very real uh, point, a very real trend. Um, I wonder, right? I mean, what the implications are of getting your positive, you know the attention that you crave the the caring that you crave for your for being weak or traumatized or vulnerable is is that is that um is that as nourishing as you imagine it will be no Very in the long run interesting in the long run, it's... food for thought yeah Okay, so to conclude, you know, uh, really, really important work you're doing here um, that has implications for society, has implications for the workplace, for education, and I even love how you talk about implications for parents. <laughs> but but the thread running through all of that is that as managers, as parents, as leaders, we can help people reframe their failure as something that is part of learning, and it doesn't have to be a source of shame. Is that a fair summary? Exactly right. So, Beautifully put. Okay. Whew. Thank you, Amy. It's <laughs> so <you>. wonderful. <laughs> and I'm honored to have you finally on my podcast. And congratulations on all your very well-deserved 
earned, 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 earned successes. <laughs> <laughs> What's the opposite of unearned, earned? Un- earned, uh, earned. Un- earned. Yeah. It's earned, well earned. earned. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're whatever you are. Right. I, you earned it. Um, no, I'm really proud of you. Thank uh, I'm you. Really proud of you. Yeah. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.